today I want to give the fifth talk uh, in a series of talks on transforming the judgmental mind. And I've mentioned in the past talks that this is partly to share the, this, um, these practices and teachings on a very crucial area for our practice, one that can, for many of us, really uh, help us work through a major barrier to deeper spiritual insight. It's particularly, there's a, as well as help with uh, <clears throat> better relationship to oneself, to others, to, to the world, I think. And a second reason, a little more self-interested, is that I'm working on a book on transforming the judgmental mind, and I'm interested, really, in involving our Wednesday gathering in the creative process. Uh, so partly giving these talks helps to spark my creativity, and it also invites your creativity and sharing of your experience. Anyone who wants to keep a journal about your own work with judgments and you know, have a pseudonym for the book, change, change genders, maybe change your age, the opportunity is there. And so uh, I'm, I'm pleased to be uh, sharing this process with you. And the book is coming along. So. I've sometimes joked that uh, in the past I didn't think I was making good enough progress, but I had done too much internal work with my own judgmental mind that I wasn't hard enough on myself. And if I was harder on myself, I would have made better progress. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so. so in past talks, I've given uh, an outline of the nature of the judgmental mind. And the definitions are particularly important. I'll come back to those in a moment. And in the last talk, I began to offer an outline of four stages of transforming the judgmental mind. And in that talk, which was about a month ago, and by the way, all of these talks are on the website, uh, dharmaseed.org, D-H-A-R-M-A-S-E-E-D.org. And in that talk, I introduced this model of the four stages, and I went over especially the first and to some extent the second stage. And what I want to do is to briefly review uh, the overall framework, because I think there are a certain number of people here who haven't come to any of the talks on, on the judgmental mind. How many, for how many is this your first time to this series of talks? Uh, those who've gone to retreats on the topic don't need to raise your hand. How many is this the first time? Yeah, okay, so maybe about a quarter or a little bit more of the group. So I'll give a brief uh, just account of the nature of the judgmental mind, and then I'll go right into this uh, four-stage model, review somewhat the first and second, but try to, in a way, complete the model, give you a sense of the model and how to work with it. And again, my, my interest is especially to encourage people to work uh, at whatever stage you're at uh, with the judgmental mind. And I'll, I'll come back next week and continue with this theme. And so it'll be a 
venue where we can compare notes and share our experiences about, about the judgmental mind. I find this really crucial. As I've mentioned in previous talks, I've been working with people on this theme for about 15 years, and particularly in groups uh, that would typically meet monthly and also in retreats. And it's the, uh, the shared investigation of this topic is really crucial. Uh, because most of us suffer somewhat alone at times being self-judgmental or judgmental of others. And in our maybe more difficult moments, we may think that I am uniquely flawed or problematic. I, I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's very helpful to know that the, the uh, core dynamics of how the judgmental mind work are quite similar among uh, all of us. And that when we see the dynamics, it's quite workable. I've also mentioned how the judgmental mind can be linked with a lot of suffering. So maybe first of all, to come back to the way that I define it, give some examples and so forth, and then do that briefly and then get, get right into this model of the four stages. Um, in past sessions, I've talked about uh, the judgmental mind as issuing uh, what we can call judgments of self or other. And I'm distinguishing the manifestations of the judgmental mind from what we might call more neutral judgments that don't have charge or reactivity. I'm going to suggest that the judgmental mind is characterized by some kind of noticing or observation or discernment linked with reactivity. It's the reactivity. The reactivity is the pushing away or the grabbing hold. And we're typically interested in the pushing away. You know, oh, I'm not, I'm not okay. Oh, you know, or that person is so full of himself. You know, or the, you know, probably a certain percentage of us coming here had judgments towards drivers. How many of you, when we actually asked for examples in a few sessions, driving was a, like a main area. How many of you had judgments towards a driver coming here? So uh, I did. It, it was, it was I, I'm judgmental of uh, people who tailgate at 60 or 70 miles an hour. And, and will come, there's some discernment there, right? There's some noticing, because that's unsafe. It is unsafe, right? Um, and, and we'll see that a lot of our judgments have some kind of noticing. Think of judgments of political figures. Not too much in depth. But, <laughs> but think of your judgments of political figures. Often you're noticing a lot. Or think of a judgment about... Uh, <clears throat> Injustice, right? We can really uh, notice something that's very important to notice and still be very reactive, right? I've mentioned in past talks how I've sometimes given uh, workshops for activists on the theme of the judgmental mind. And they really, at least the ones who come, think that they really need it, that it's actually a big issue because in a lot of activist organizations, you know, the judgmental mind is pretty activated, because they're paying so much attention to injustice. 
and they find that the judgmental mind actually is very, very active in their relations with each other. That the judgmental mind in activist organizations actually makes it harder. That's what I heard from people. <clears throat> so there's some kind of noticing. I know, you know, you notice something about that driver, right? And yet there's reactivity. And we can really connect this with our larger sense of Buddhist practice is that, you know, at the center of, uh, a, you know, the, a particular phase of practice, which for us, for most of us, is, is a very predominant phase, we are, we are especially focusing on where we're reactive. I, I prefer, as, as uh, many of you know, I prefer reactivity as a translation of dukkha, usually translated as suffering, right? And reactivity sort of gets at some things that, that suffering doesn't. First of all, the reactivity is both the pushing away and the grabbing hold. And we'll see that judgments can also grab hold as when I uh, inflate someone or say, oh, that person is so cool, right? There can be some grasping. There's some reactivity. And when we just use the word suffering, we don't always see the grasping. We focus more on the unpleasant experiences. And the, the other aspect that we, we uh, might miss uh, or that we get with reactivity is that it's, it's actually the, the, act, the uh, moment of pushing away or grabbing hold is the actual suffering. That's where it's actually a kind of uh, inability to be with the present moment. It's a reactivity to the present moment. The aim of our practice is to transform reactivity and the judgmental mind gives us one of the main areas we can do that. The transformation of the judgmental mind is going to look like keeping the noticing or the discernment and working through the reactivity. So it's really parallel to the essence of our practice and really is a main area. Uh, And so when we use the word suffering, we don't always see that. We also can, in using the word suffering, tend to blur the distinction between the simple presence of the unpleasant and the reactivity. It's really in the teachings of the Buddha, I think it's really the reactivity that we're trying to transform. We're not trying to get rid of unpleasant experiences. Those are part of human life. And when we use the word suffering, we sometimes obscure that. Does that make some sense? And so we use the word reactivity and we realize we're not trying to get rid of the unpleasant. A lot of people may use meditation. I, I certainly thought when I was first meditating, if I meditate enough, everything will be pleasant and I'll always be happy. Has anyone had that idea? Okay, okay. Um, and I think more people have had it. Or I thought, okay, you know, the, this will be the end of my difficulties in life. Very... Um, very young, <laughs> very young view. And so, uh, so working with the judgmental mind, what we want to do is we want to preserve those insights or the discernment that we find in the judgment, but be able to um, work through the reactivity, not have the reactivity present. That permits me as an activist not to so much demonize my opponents or not to be so much involved with reacting, you know? And we'll find that the reaction 
often, as we, as we go deeper, often covers over something that's there. I mean, I'll, I'll say this and maybe come back to this. What I have found is that the judgmental mind is actually a kind of defense mechanism to protect us against something unpleasant. It covers over. And I'll come back to that because I and really unpack that. So we have examples of judgments, you know, with the drivers, maybe as an activist looking at a political figure with a partner, uh, judging ourselves. We can judge ourselves very harshly. Something doesn't go well in the relationship. And I can either judge my partner or judge myself. Uh, I, I may, and we'll come to this, I may have chronic areas where I judge myself. And most of us are, can have moments where we can be quite harsh in our judgments towards uh, ourselves or others. And maybe just to finish that point, I'm distinguishing this sense of judgment from judgments which don't have reactivity necessarily, but we in English still use the word judgment, like we talk about making artistic judgments or evaluations. You know, a movie critic may make a judgment, we, we would say that in English, about a movie, but there might not, there might not be reactivity. Or, we, or as a teacher, I might, it might be very important for me to make a kind of assessment or evaluation. I might sometimes use the word judgment about a student. And if I'm uh, non-reactive, it's not judgmental, right? And if a student feels me being judgmental, it's going to be, uh, it's going to set up a lot of static, right? It's going to be hard for me actually to be an effective teacher if I'm judgmental towards my students, right? And yet I'm still in the sense of ordinary English, still making judgments, right? And I'm distinguishing the judgmental mind, the judgments of the judgmental mind from those more neutral judgments. And so when I'm going to be using the word judgment, I'm only referring to the reactive kinds. Now what we saw last time was, and it's an interesting thing, is that what characterizes the judgment is the reactivity. It's not the particular content of what we say. I can say, and we, we saw when we, uh, the last time we looked at this, we gave examples. And we saw that the, that the uh, language plays a key role, the tone of voice plays a key role. I can say the exact same thing with a different tone of voice, and in one instance, I'm being really helpful and compassionate. In another instance, I'm being incredibly harsh and judgmental, and the words are the same. You know, I can say, for example... Uh, let's say to a student, uh, you really need some work here. You know? And I could say that pretty compassionately. I think, I think you need some work here. You know? And I could say it really wanting to help. And I could, how would I say that judgmentally? <laughs> Same words, right? Uh, I think you need some work here. <laughs> yeah, you, and we know this, right? So it's really interesting. So when you're studying the judgmental mind, we're going to actually not just look into the content, but we're going to look into the tone of voice, how the body is, is it tense, and so forth. Okay, clear enough sense of what we're talking about? And uh, last time I talked and said that in my, my work with people over these years, I have found that there are two broad ways of transforming the judgmental mind. The first is to go directly into the judgments, be mindful of them, explore them, work with them, transform them. That's what I'm talking about, especially today. The second way of transforming is just as important, and this is, to, this is what I call the more indirect approach. The first approach is more direct. 
The second approach is we cultivate more awakened states. And I, in my work with people, I particularly emphasize what we can call heart practices, loving kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, also forgiveness, gratitude. We could also add mindfulness, equanimity. We basically work with the judgmental mind partly by going into it, seeing it, deconstructing it, developing a new way of being where previously there were judgments. Number, approach number one. Approach number two is we actually forget about judgments and we develop beautiful qualities. And for a lot of us, that's really, really crucial. I mentioned how that's really crucial for a few reasons. First of all, as we'll see, to go into the territory of judgments can often be painful. If there really are defense mechanisms, that means that when we go more deeply into them, we sometimes see the pain that the judgments cover over. And we need resources to do that. A lot of the resources are those of compassion, empathy, a kind heart, balance, equanimity, and so forth. So we need the, we need the balance of these other states. So some people I work with, I might say, okay, for the first six months, just develop beautiful qualities. <laughs> Don't look at judgments at all. Forget about them. <laughs> Be happy. Be with trees. Go to Spirit Rock a lot. Don't watch the news. Too much. Um, and then a second reason is that sometimes when judgments come and they take us over, they can be quite strong and we need ways to shift out of them, shift out of the energy. Like if you have a self-judgment at three in the morning or four in the morning, we need ways of getting unstuck. And these heart practices, like having the capacity to really go to self-compassion quickly, is really crucial. We need ways of getting unstuck when we have judgment attacks, right? Or when we're judging others and we're really stuck there. We need ways of moving out of that. And these awakened qualities, the heart qualities especially, really help there. And then as we hang out more, with these awakened qualities, we shift our center of gravity. We actually shift away from the judgmental mind. We experience more and more a different way of being, which increasingly becomes our center. So that's a second complementary way of practicing. When we look at the more direct approach, which is that of going into the judgments, I have found it useful to use this model of four stages, which is on your handout. And I want to go more briefly through the first and second, and then go to the, the third and fourth. I thought first I'd just read a poem. Uh, one, one thing that is really striking is that some of the most uh, wonderful people you know including yourself, uh, have difficulties with the judgmental mind. In fact, I think it's almost universal, at least in this country. I don't know about Korea. <laughs> judgmental mind in Korea? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, it's almost universal. It's there with people who you might look at externally 
and think that these people have wonderful lives. They, they must be so happy. And when you go beneath the surface or in their private moments, the judgmental mind is there. You know, and sometimes you can read uh, biographies of well-known people and you'll find that out, you know, that it's very strong there. This is a poem by one of our most beloved poets, uh, Mary Oliver. And she talks about her own qualities. She doesn't, this doesn't come out so much in her poems, but this is what she said. This is a poem about, really it's about the second approach to transforming judgments, which is being with beautiful qualities, being with uh, the trees, the, the forest, the mountains. This is a poem called, When I Am Among the Trees. When I am among the trees, especially the willows and the honey locusts, especially equally the beech, the oaks, and the pines, they give off such hints of gladness. I would almost say that they save me and daily. I am so distant from the hope of myself in which I have goodness and discernment and never hurry through the world but walk slowly and bow often. That's quite striking. I am so distant from the hope of myself, from this amazing, beloved poet. Around me the trees stir in their leaves and call out, stay a while. The light flows from their branches and they call again. It's simple, they say, and you too have come into the world to do this, to go easy, to be filled with light and to shine. So it's what we aspire to. And again, uh, we need to have the space to be able to go deeply and see sometimes that there can be those, there can be those judgments. So the four stages are first really moving from our everyday lives and starting to access the judgmental mind and go more deeply into the roots of the judgmental mind. <clears throat> and the model I use here is one of going into really the territory that's more unconscious or more beneath the surface. Because what we'll find as we look at the judgmental mind is that we have certain uh, chronic judgments of self or other that if we look at, that if we look at we'll find that there are often roots of these judgments that come from our past, our personal past, our family past, our social past, that uh, may, may have been directing us, ruling us, churning out these judgments without us knowing so much about them. And we, as we go into the second stage, we start to get glimpses of this deeper level where, as it were, the judgments are manufactured. I remember once, uh, once I had a dream of uh, going, I remember going to a factory where causes and effects were manufactured. <laughs> it was a very interesting dream. You know, actually... When I, saw, when I was there and saw all the cause and effects, I immediately went to this profound, like, altered state, a mystical state. I said, whoa. <laughs> so it was very interesting. That was in a dream. I haven't found that factory in real life. But, but in a dream, I found it. 
And so, um, so we go into the second stage of looking beneath the surface. And I'll, I'll go into these in detail in a moment. And then the, um, when we have really this clear glimpse of the roots of our most regular and persistent judgments, and we get to the roots of them, we have the potential of transforming them, of actually developing alternative ways of being with a given situation or a given part of our lives or with ourselves in a certain way. And we can develop, as it were, transformed ways of being that don't work with the roots that were there. We, in other words, we can, in a sense, develop new roots, to use that, use that metaphor. And the third stage is where that occurs, where we actually shift and transform what for many of us are deep patterns. A lot of them are intergenerational. They go back generations. The judgmental mind goes back generations and centuries, a lot of the patterns, particularly in the social manifestations. And, and yet they're, they're workable, they're transformable. And then in the fourth stage, we gradually, in the third stage, which is often we might do in a more private setting, like a in our meditation, in our retreat, maybe working with a psychotherapist, working with a coach, uh, maybe in an intimate relationship, in this more uh, kind of a uh, crucible of change. And then we gradually find ways, and this is the fourth stage, of stabilizing the changes, integrating them and bringing back, them back to our, into our everyday lives. And so if you look at the little diagram, you know, that the line that's there on the left and the right is sort of the line of everyday life. And the fact that we go into a kind of a valley means that we go into a kind of uh, the depths and so forth. And I'll just say that this model is one, uh, I learned something like this model uh, when I went through a, a training in body-based psychotherapy with the Hakomi approach to that. Some of you probably have studied that. And, but it's really a model that's actually a very basic model for any kind of looking at the deep roots of our reactivity, suffering, confusion, conditioning, going into the unconscious, going into the automatic, going into our ignorance. It's really a simple map. I think any kind of change is going to have something like these four stages, starting with our ordinary lives, developing some tools, some resources that permits us to gradually see what was beneath the surface, see what's more subtle, go into that, go into those depths, transform, learn a new way of seeing, and then learn how to make it real in daily life. That's it, right? That's, that's the transformative process. And so I use this for the judgmental mind, but it's really applicable. <clears throat> so this first stage, again, it may start when we come to a talk on the judgmental mind uh, or start for some reason, looking at the judgmental mind. Maybe our partner says, no, I went to a talk on the judgmental mind and you should come too. I think you have some work to do on it. <laughs> of course, that was a pure discernment said with no reactivity. <laughs> right? And Maybe not. Um, and so, so in, in any case, we start, you know, someone might point it out, you know, for me, uh, I think it was partly by over the years just looking at judgments a lot, getting familiar with it. And then at a certain point, 
uh, the judgments were very strong. You know, at a certain phase of my life, I was very self-critical, and I worked with a meditation teacher who pointed this out. And, you know, for me, I wouldn't have, if you asked me, I wouldn't have said I was particularly judgmental because I didn't really see it, right? I didn't really notice it. And it was pointed out. And then and I was given some practices to start looking at it. So this is what we've done in some of the past weeks. We might start with mindfulness. And I've given practices of how to work with judgments using mindfulness. Just first practice is just to notice when they're there. Make a note, be at a meeting. Notice, oh, there's a judgment. Oh, someone else's judgment. Remember, I'm using judgment in the sense of reactivity. Oh, there's another judgment. Oh, another one. And when we're in this first stage, we have to guard against being overwhelmed by the number of judgments we notice. Has anyone had that experience of saying, when you look carefully at judgments, my God, I am a judgment machine. Have I no shame? <laughs> you know? And we want to watch out because the judgment about how many judgments there are is a judgment itself. So you want to track that. I call that a stealth judgment. <laughs> because it's under the radar, right? It's a, and so we, want, we, <clears throat> we start seeing how many there are. This is when, at the beginning, this is where it's very important also to be doing a heart practice. Loving kindness, compassion, some kind of practice that helps us hold what we're noticing in ourselves and others with some degree of compassion. And again, even spending time being with beauty, being in places which are just bringing us the, the wonderful aspects of life a lot, you know, to hang out there. You know, I would, might give someone a practice, okay, every day, 10 minutes or half an hour, just with beauty. Can be flowers, trees, music, art, just be with that. Maybe, maybe some of us do that anyway, or more than that time. You know, I remember there was a time when I just had a practice every day for an hour, I would be in the forest and just be kind of nourished by that. A lot of our lives get really busy. It's hard to do that for a lot of us, right? But uh, that can be very, very uh, nourishing. <clears throat> and so we notice, we develop tools, mindfulness, compassion practice. We especially may have uh, a community to help us look at this, a friend, you know, people to look at. Again, I, when I work with people in groups, really crucial to look at these things together. Um, you know, sometimes uh, humor can be very helpful. Uh, <clears throat> it's my coincidence for me when I was first really investigating judgments a lot. It, was, it coincided with a period when I was enrolled in the clown school of San Francisco as a student and was actually getting clown training. And it was very, very helpful. I actually had some of my routines I developed were about judgments. <laughs> you know, very helpful. You know, sometimes I, I used to sometimes answer questions at the end of a talk and bring out my clown nose and give bad answers to good questions. But maybe, maybe another time. Um, and so we, we investigate in that way. We keep looking. We start to also have tools that help us to go beneath the surface. Some of the practices that I gave in the guided meditation were practices that are part of this first stage of accessing. You know, to use mindfulness when a judgment is there and we can actually be mindful, explore it. A lot of what's going to be helpful in our exploration of judgments is to notice what the thoughts are, what the narratives are, what it feels like in the body, what the mood is, 
The aim is to do that so we can recognize the judgments as soon as possible and save us from suffering, basically. That's a key for practicing, doing the kind of practices we're doing. If we can really study our judgments enough to notice them really well, know what it feels like in the body. For me, sometimes I'll notice myself being in a reactive judgmental place more by how my body feels than by what's going on in my mind, right? And so the exploration with mindfulness and other tools, knowing what the voice sounds like, what are the narratives, what are the words that I say to myself about this person or about myself, you know, and really noticing them, really studying that carefully. And then we used another tool, which I call the dropping down practice, which uh, is a way of starting to go into the body and letting the body be an access point for what's beneath the surface. A lot of the judgments work at the verbal level, and if we stay at the verbal level, we won't necessarily go deeper. And so one of the tools that is this dropping down practice of bringing the judgment to mind or being with it in the moment when it's occurring, or can bring it to mind after the fact in a meditation, and bringing then, having it be lived through, and then bringing it down in bringing the attention into the body. In many ways, if we stay at the verbal level, we can't really figure out the judgments because they're coming from a different place and they're working at a verbal level. So the body can sometimes open us up to the emotions that are driving the judgment. You know, so we may be with the judgmental and we may uh, then bring the attention to the heart area and we may feel tightness around the, the heart might be the physical manifestation, or we might actually notice, oh, there's really anger there. For some of us, that might have been obvious with the judgment. For others, not so obvious. And I might say, oh, there's really anger. Or I might be judgmental, and I go to the heart, and after a while I thought, oh, actually there's a lot of sadness. I'm sad that this happened in the relationship, right? And uh, if we stay at the judgmental level, we don't get to that sadness, and often beneath the sadness, there's love. And so the, uh, the sadness is a kind of a pain that might be, covering, be covered over. And so we do this accessing work, and we start to get a sense of what's deeper. We have to do this dropping down practice and the mindfulness many, many, many times. You know, the dropping down practice can take a while, unless you've done a lot of body work, and are really used to going into the body, which some of us are, it can, it, we need to repeat it 50, 100, 200, 300 times. Just do it for two or three minutes at a time. Do it a few times a day, and it'll start to, get, uh, start to be familiar. When you first do it, don't worry about results. Just keep doing it. I was told to do this. I had total faith in my teacher. I had no appreciable results the first few hundred times I did it, I kept on doing it. I had faith. <laughs> so just remember that. Because okay. it, it, for some of us who are more in the mental world, accessing the body and what's beneath the surface is harder. For those of us who've done that work, it's a little more accessible. As we access beneath the surface, we start to have a sense, particularly with our more chronic judgments, that there is some pattern to them. We start saying, oh, I get triggered with these kind of situations. 
You know, and I gave the story of myself being triggered into judgment often when I thought this person is not listening to me. You know, and that would, when I was in this period of studying, that would trigger me. And so we want to study our patterns. We start to get a sense, oh, you know, I gave the example of someone who was very judgmental of people who are angry. Someone who maybe at age four years old got the training, don't be angry, and then became judgmental towards oneself when angry and towards others, you know, and then, you know, and, did the, and repeated this pattern for 30 years or 40 years. And then someone said, you know, uh, do you have an issue about anger? <laughs> right? And then maybe started to see. And at a certain point, we start to get a sense that there are unifying patterns. And when I work with people, we, we typically do experiential practices like the dropping down <clears throat> and using guiding meditations <clears throat> to get a sense of what might be driving our most regular and chronic judgments. So it might be, to give the example of that person who was told, don't be angry at age four and suppressed the anger, found, oh, I have really a regular pattern of being judgmental anytime anyone gets angry or whenever I get anger, angry, might have a sense that there's something beneath the surface which is driving this. Essentially, what happened at age four, the four-year-old produced a very simple mental model, we might say, anger is bad. Not conscious. But it drove that person's behavior well into adulthood and may all the way to the grave unless that person looks at it, right? There's a pattern where I might, you know, uh, and we, we looked last time at a few of the patterns that there can be all sorts of patterns that produce judgments. You know, the, the patterns can be about myself. I'm not okay. I'm not adequate. My anger is bad. You know, if I'm really myself, people won't love me. They can be about one's relationships. My needs will not be met. You know, I'm focusing on the negative ones. We can have positive judgments as well or positive, uh, what I'm calling core beliefs. I'm calling these core beliefs. They're at, the, they're at the base of a lot of things. They can be personal about myself. They can be about my relationships. One person I worked with developed the core belief, I think, from childhood. Every time something goes wrong, it must be my fault. Probably some of you know, know that one. You know, and very, very common. Again, the, these, the, I'm calling these core limiting beliefs, and we all have some of them. We all have several of them. They can be personal. They can be about relationships. I mentioned how people who may have had um, a divorce when they were eight years old or ten years old may have a core belief if I get really close to people, they will leave me, which can really be influential in a relationship, you know, uh, or, you know, which, which is a kind of a model of, um, you can see how core beliefs can come from difficult experiences or from traumatic experiences, right, of a divorce. A core belief gets formed. Essentially, it's, it's the way the mind tends to prefer particularly when young, easy answers to complex issues. 
The brain likes easy answers, right? I would prefer to, to um, not deal with all the complexities of the political situation just by saying, my candidate is bad, right? It's an easy way to, or, you know, a lot of us have something like a core belief that may come up, I'm right, you're wrong. Forget about the complexities. Simplifies life. The brain likes simplification, right? And so we have these, we have these different core beliefs. You know, some of them can be uh, from social conditioning. You know, we take in certain conditioning, which can be negative because of membership in a group, of being uh, of this gender, of this sexual orientation, of this ethnicity. We take in and form core beliefs. There can be intergenerational trauma, which is connected with core beliefs. So it's a lot, right? This is a lot. You know, there are all sorts of them, you know. And they can be triggered all the time. So part of the work is to be able to see these and to gradually notice them. This can take quite some time to really gradually notice these, you know, one or two or three uh, core beliefs. Uh, start to get a sense of them. Again, this can take a lot of work just to, just to get there. The core beliefs can be triggered by everyday events. I was working uh, two days ago with a group, and I'll just mention some of what arose in that situation. You know, one person who was um, going to a conference uh, was going to share a camping to save some money from the accommodations with another person, and then someone offered, "Can you, you could stay at my house. And the person didn't want to share the room with the other person uh, just to have a little bit of space. And that event triggered confusion, and the core belief came, you know, uh, the person started suffering and judging herself for wanting her own space, and I'm just, you know, I'm just not compassionate, I don't think of others, I just think of myself. And we found when we did the work, there was a core belief, I can't really meet my own needs, or meeting my own needs is wrong. And that might be familiar, you know, and they get triggered by everyday events. And I'll, in a moment, I'll talk about how we transform these. Another example from two days ago, someone found and had, had known, this is a group I've been working with, knew that the person has the core belief, when there's a dispute of views, I need to be right. Last time I asked for hands as to how many of you have some version of this? that I need to be right. And when we actually looked at it, we found it actually was connected with childhood. I need to be right could be connected if the parent said, you did this, and the person didn't. The child wants to defend himself or herself in order to get love or some resources. And so we found that this core belief was formed in childhood. This is, so we have the stuff from the past is there. This is from the novelist William Faulkner. He says, the past is never dead. It's not even past. <laughs> and this is, this is from the poet Rilke. He says, no one lives his or her life 
disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled from voices and fears and little pleasures, we come of age as masks. Our true face never speaks. Somewhere there must be storehouses where all these lives are laid away like suits of armor or old carriages or clothes hanging limply on the walls. Maybe, maybe all paths lead there to the repository of unlived things. So he says we come of age as masks. We have these core beliefs. Now, last time I ended right in the depths. They're core beliefs. They're hard. They're negative. Ah! Bye. <laughs> and so... Um, I wouldn't be presenting this unless I was actually very optimistic and saying that even though patterns have repeated themselves along the neural pathways a million times, they can be changed. Pretty remarkable. Again, it's related to what the neuroscientists talk about as neuroplasticity. We can have gone down the same route, had the same core belief come up 500,000 times, and it can be changed. That the reversal and transformation of core beliefs is possible. You know, again, I, when I work with people, we go slowly into this, but I just want to give some examples, like that person who had that sense of, uh, was, was kind of thrown into a core belief by this difficult situation with the conference and was going into a core belief like, I can't meet my needs and was judgmental of herself. I'm selfish, I can't meet my needs. Really, the, the, the difficult event just threw her right into a funk, you might say. But she was able to look carefully at it, doing some practices, and we'd been working together for a few years, was able to identify the core belief pretty clearly. And then in our practices, we invite, is there a reversed or a transformed belief or transformed way of seeing things that's possible? And with some work together, we were, we were able to see that there could be a different model which said, I can take care of myself and be compassionate at the same time. Something like that. You know, again, that sounds a little bit more like an adult. <laughs> the core beliefs often are in, the, in a child's language. Very simple. You're bad. <laughs> you know, or you're selfish. You know, or something like that. And, but we were able to move to a way of seeing things, which was quite different. And I think for, let me see, for this person, sometimes it'll be the logical opposite. Sometimes it'll be like this. Let me see what my, what my notes are on, on this person. Yeah, for this person it was, I can respond, I can meet my needs and also respond to others. And then we looked for what supports that different way of being, because it's not enough just to have the insight. That's not going to do it. We need, essentially, to reinforce and support the new way of seeing over and over again. So I would typically ask, what practices really help this? What people is it good to hang out with? What people is it not good to hang out with? Right? What's going to really support you to come with this sense of this new way of seeing? Or uh, the person who I worked with who had the sense of, um, um, I, you know, I have to be right. 
I have to be right about everything. When we work with that person, because uh, there was the idea, if I'm not right, I won't get what I need. That was the understanding there. But the person, it took some work to really have the sense, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm uh, uh, not right, I won't get as I need. Because it just came initially as, I need to be right. I need to be right. I am right. You're wrong. I am right. I am right. Like maybe, you know, two or three million times. <laughs> it's going to set up some neural pathways, right? <laughs> and then, but we found that for this person, there could be... Uh, <clears throat> there could be a sense of I can really, that it's actually not about me and that I can rest in myself. For this person, the transformed belief was I can rest in myself and be free from how others define me and that there's a way that I can have that kind of resting in my own being and make that stronger and stronger. And for this person, that is going to transform that previous core belief. And so we look for what are the practices which help that? You know, for someone who has the core belief about anger, it might be to, you know, you can imagine, here it's maybe a little simpler, you can imagine someone might come to a transformed understanding, anger is part of me and it's okay. And we would look for ways of practice, ways of being that would bring about that new one. Now here I'm mostly focusing on more personal practices. There are, I think there are some different things to do when we're talking about social conditioning. and Maybe I'll talk about that next time. But do you see how it can take some work to have the sense of what is the transformation? It can take enormous amount of work just to get to here's the core belief. Right? It can take further investigation, practice, being with others to get to a sense of here is the transformation of that core belief. Here is the new way of being. And then it can take further time to stabilize that and integrate that by finding what are the supports? How can I hang out? And this is where the heart practices play a big role. You know, just to be in ways of being, being in states of being where the judgmental mind and the core beliefs are not operative. So you get to get a sense of how there are these four stages. They're all challenging. This is a challenging area. We need, we need support. Let me just finish and close. Um, another poem. This is from Jennifer Wellwood, who is local. It's called Unconditional. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant, jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game, to play it as purest delight, to honor its form, true devotion. So 
I think this is a, a map of working with and transforming judgments. And it actually, something quite similar would be there for other, other ways that we're stuck or have knots in our being. It's going to follow something like this, but this is a map for judgments. It's workable. There's good news. We need friends to do it. It's possible. And we're in it together. So, thank you. We have a little bit of time for a few questions or reflections. I think we have one right to your, oh, okay, yeah, and then to your, behind you. Hi, um, you say friends, friends to do it, and then you also mentioned um, psychotherapists. Yeah, and and need support. So, I, um, are you going to a little closer to your mouth? Are you going to talk about that in the future, or because that's not so easy to just? How do you get the supports? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's let's explore that. Um, we can bring that in more next time, a week from now. Uh, here and then up front. Yeah. That's really crucial. How how do you have the supports? I think the process is really workable, but the, the practices and the supports play a key role, of course. Yeah. Please. Hi. I, um, it occurred to me while we were going through this that limiting beliefs, there might... I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it seems like there might be a... A little closer to your mouth. A standard set. There's kind of a... There are, there are a pretty standard set, yeah. yeah. And even the, the transformation yeah. has a standard. There's a standard... Trans- I was about to ask you, what's the... Transformation for X. Yeah. Belief. Yeah. It almost seems like there would be. Yeah. Um, yeah. On your first point, I think there are uh, quite a lot of standard, uh, standard core beliefs. You know, and some psychologists have identified them. There's a very nice book called uh, Emotional Alchemy by Tara Bennett Goldman, and she works with the concept of schema. A little, same idea though. And she has a list of about, oh, uh, maybe about 20 or so, which are quite, quite uh, common. You know, they're, they're the ones of, you know, you could think of one like abandonment related to the example I gave or some kind of uh, uh, inadequacy, very, very common. Uh, you know, I can't trust people, you know, very common. Some of, it's, some of them, these are uh, very common because we have common social conditioning. Right? And so there are, I think there are a fairly standard set. Now I find in working with people in terms of the transformed understanding that it needs to be quite personal. It sometimes is the logical opposite of the core belief, but often it's not. So I gave the example, uh, I think a few weeks ago, of a, a woman who found that she had a deep core belief, uh, divorced women cannot be happy. Obviously, this was something, social conditioning, and also might be related to childhood material, but clearly that particular one was picked up as an adult. Right? And uh, it was, the transformed belief wasn't the, uh, wasn't the logical opposite. You know, uh, divorced women can be happy. Take that. You know, it wasn't that. It was more when we actually did the inner work, it was more she went to, uh, I am a radiant being. You know, something more looking to... The, that, that was for her what 
what shifted it, really connecting around that shifted. It was more getting a sense of her own beauty and uh, quality of shining. And of course, then we wanted to do practices which brought that out more and more and, and situations, you know, and so forth. So it's almost like a whole way of being is suggested. Yeah, thank you. Please. Thank you, thank you for this talk. Yeah. Um, uh, I've noticed in uh, hanging, little, little oh, uh, I've noticed in uh, hanging out with the feeling state in trying to uncover the yeah. core belief that it, it's extremely difficult like, yeah. for me to to go backwards. The feeling state is ever present or nearly ever present. Yeah. Uh, and so you know, under feeling the qualities of that, but really understanding the underlying limiting beliefs yeah. that you were describing. Yeah. Is, yeah, I've really. Uh, Did you finish? Yeah. I I really telescoped a process which I could actually take uh, a whole session just talking about how to get from one to two. You know, that that there's a lot of detail. And I don't want to suggest that you can get to the stage two core beliefs just by listening to this talk and doing a a little bit of reflection. (laughs) You know, it can, um, you know, if one was starting in psychotherapy and maybe didn't have... Uh, the background of mindfulness or heart practices, we might be, depending on the person, we might be talking about one year, two year, three years, even to get a, a sense of the core beliefs. You know, so the process can take a, a while. For people who are more experienced, it can be much briefer. I mentioned, I think, last time that when I do retreats of one week duration on this topic, uh, that almost everyone in the retreat can get to stage two at least temporarily, and have a sense of the core beliefs and even have a sense of the transformation, but then it takes a lot of coming back and working with it. Um, and there are a lot of subtleties of working with it. I, there, there, there's a need, for example, we can't really be mindful of the judgment unless we have a certain degree of balance. And so it's very important to ask Am I really being mindful of the judgment or does the judgment have me by the neck, as it were? And if that's the case, it's better to get out of it and shift to something like the loving kindness or compassion. So there are a lot of uh, subtleties of actually having how, how to work with this. Uh, you know, it's like, the, the, you know, if I had to summarize them, maybe I'll finish with this. If I have to summarize it, it would be something like this. Begin to explore... Start with mindfulness of just noting when the judgments are there. Take up a heart practice at the same time. Be doing at least 10 or 15 minutes of loving kindness or compassion or some other practice. If you can, do a body practice. If you're not so aware of your body, do that. Do yoga or do walking meditation. Do walking, be aware of your body. Get all of those things in motion. If possible, have friends who are also interested so you can compare notes with and so forth. And then uh, notice, the, notice the judgments with mindfulness. If they occur in a place where you can be balanced with the judgments, explore them. If the judgments comes and it's an attack <clears throat> and you're just totally overwhelmed, try to get out of it as well as you can. Sometimes it's actually saying... Um, Get out of here. 
Sometimes actually being a little aggressive can be useful as a temporary tool. Uh, if we can be mindful, explore it, see what it's like. It's really important to know the difference between being mindful and being overwhelmed. Okay? Uh, and there are a lot of other techniques and tools to use there. Uh, sometimes we can, after the fact, explore a judgment, like something happened earlier in the day, come back in the evening, do like the guided practice of explore. What was that like? So sometimes you can come back to a judgment which was overwhelming earlier and come back and explore it later. We really want to be able to explore the judgment with mindfulness when we're balanced enough so it doesn't take us away and we can actually be present. Sometimes it takes a while to notice that difference. Um, It's very helpful to ask, what is the degree of intensity of the judgment on a scale of 1 to 10? Am I, do I have a 10 that's in me? Or is it like a 6? Six? 6 is probably workable. 10 is probably not workable in the moment. We need to just try to get out of there or move it or shift it. And there are a lot of techniques to do that. Again, it could be take a walk, do something physical, talk to a friend. Uh, there are other techniques to, to, to shift. And, you know, and then as we, uh, you know, I think support's very crucial. I, I find being in a group is really crucial because then we, we do see, it's like your point, we see how common the conditioning is. When we haven't connected with other people, we will tend to think it's just my problem, which is not true. You know, the conditioning, very, very similar, you know. And uh, it's extremely helpful to know that. We don't take it personally quite so much, you know. And then we can, again, can explore, you know, sometimes reflection, seeing the patterns, you know, starting to notice, oh, what triggered that judgment? And just keep studying it, keep a, keep a notebook, have friends, judgment buddies. Yeah. And, and start with the ones, don't go right away to the most difficult ones. We have a, we have a wish, I'm going to go right to the most difficult ones and work those out doesn't work like that. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, work with the lesser ones. Work with the ones that are of a uh, degree of difficulty four, five, six, seven. Study judgments at work, maybe where it's a six. Study judgments with drivers where it's a six or a five. Don't go right away to the most difficult ones. They'll be too hard unless you really have a lot of, lot of background. So those are some, some tips. And it does take... Um, it can take time with our most deep ones and also know that under conditions of stress we will regress. That's normal. That doesn't mean that there's not a lot of change happened. Okay, so that's, I've tried, I've tried to summon my top 10 or 15 tips in five minutes. So there you go. Okay, so let's just sit for a moment to finish. And bring to mind whatever was most helpful from the morning and maybe an intention leaving, leaving this morning. Could be about judgments, but maybe something else was sparked and it might be about something else.
And then we finish by remembering that we do this practice very much for ourselves, but we also do it for others. And may the benefits of our morning and of our session be offered to all beings, always remembering that all beings includes us. <laughs> 